And uh, I want us again to look at the book of Nehemiah. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking, whether that be in person or online, at the book of Nehemiah itself. And seeking to unwrap something of the mystery and the purpose and the theme of that great book. It's linked with Ezra. So if you go to the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one book. Because what it does is that it gives us an oversight into the prophetic and historical background to how God brought his people back from exile and under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, we have the temple rebuilt, we have the word of the Lord re-preached and delivered to God's people and then we have the city walls restored under Nehemiah. So it's a very significant time because Israel had been out of the land for about 70 odd years. And there was a time when God would bring his people back and God would restore his people and speak to them about the covenants of promise and the future plans that God would have for them as a people and as a nation. So Nehemiah gives us this wonderful story of how God put it into the heart of Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem And to oversee the rebuilding of the city walls. He was, as the Bible says in chapter 1, the cupbearer to the king. Now that was a very, very significant role. Because what that role was, was more than just pouring a glass of wine for the monarch. Actually, it was one of protection and safeguarding. Because very often a king was in threat all of his days. And very often one of the strategies used by the enemy was to put some poison in the glass of wine. In order to kill the king. So obviously the cupbearer had the responsibility to taste the wine to make sure it had not been spiked in order to ensure that the safety of the king was preserved. And not only did the cupbearer perform that vital duty as a bodyguard as it were, but they were very much a confidant, someone that the king would look to and seek advice from. So obviously Nehemiah in his role was more than just somebody who poured the wine. He was actually someone who had a listening ear. And he had this relationship with the king because we understand that actually the king looked at Nehemiah and understood that Nehemiah was struggling with certain things and asked the question, what is wrong? Why are you downcast? And Nehemiah said, well, I've heard a report from my brother that the gates and the walls of Jerusalem are a pile of rubble. And obviously out of that comes then the edict of the king to release Nehemiah, to support his journey, to equip him and to provide the resources needed in order to rebuild the city walls. Now, as we understand something of the book itself, there are two themes that are interwoven into this book that I believe are significant for us. The first one is one of opportunity And the second one is one of opposition. And you always find this in the word of the Lord and the outworking of God's purposes. That where there is opportunity, there is always opposition. There's a wonderful passage of scripture that Paul wrote in his letter to Corinth where he said that a great door of opportunity is opened up to me, but there are those who oppose me. Now, very often we think that if God has opened a door for us and there's an opportunity to serve, that all we have to do is tiptoe through the tulips. It's a walk in the park. Everything falls into place. There are no battles, only blessings. There are no hurdles, 
simply a wonderful opportunity to do what God's called us to do. But actually, Paul would remind us that where the door of opportunity opens, there is always going to be a corresponding reaction against those who want to thwart the purposes of the Lord. And what we find in this book, and I want to look at this here today, is that there were certain elements of opposition that came against Nehemiah and the people of God in terms of the rebuilding of the city walls. And this opposition came from two quarters. There was opposition from the outside and there was opposition from the inside. Now, of those two things, what do you think was the most serious and potentially damaging? It wasn't what came against the nation from the outside. It was actually what happened within the nation that presented the greatest challenges. And it's true even today. The greatest threat to the church is not the world out there. The greatest challenge that we face is what's going on amongst us. Church history will tell us that very often when the church is persecuted from the outside and oppressed and fought against from the outside, it grows. Refinement happens. God's people are strengthened. But then when opposition comes from the inside, that's when the greatest challenges are faced. And often the most damage is done. So I want to look at this theme. I want us to look and understand not only the kind of opposition that Nehemiah and the Jews faced, but also, more importantly, what kind of response did they make to that which came against them. So the first thing, in terms of opposition from the outside, Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10, and I'll read it. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now who were these three, this almost satanic trinity? Well, they were Gentiles who had a vested interest in ensuring that Jerusalem remained a pile of rubble. So for Nehemiah to come and to start a work of restoration threatened their own little turf, their own little domain. So what did they do? They wanted to oppose and thwart and hinder the outworking of God's purpose. The first thing that we note as we look at the book of Nehemiah is that the strategy of the enemy was one of ridicule and accusation. Now you need to bear these words in mind because they're important. Ridicule and accusation. In Nehemiah 2 and verse 18 and 19 it says this, And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But... When Sambala the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Gershom the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Ridicule and accusation. What are you up to? This is an act of rebellion. When the king hears about it, He's going to send in his armies and thwart and hinder the progress of the rebuilding strategy. There was ridicule 
an accusation. And we need to understand that very often that's how the enemy works against the church. So the principles here, I believe, are relevant for us. The enemy wants to accuse. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to thwart us. He wants to ridicule us. He wants to undermine confidence. But as we understand this act of ridicule, there is then the response of the Jewish people and of Nehemiah. Where it says in verse 20 of chapter 2, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah here is laying down the marker that these enemies had no legal right to the city of the great king. They had no covenant privilege to lay claim to the city of Jerusalem. But God himself in the face of ridicule and accusation, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And that is true for us all here today, isn't it? Whatever the enemy wants to bring against us, there is a God in heaven who will make us prosper. The enemy wants to undermine us. He wants to pour scorn and ridicule us. But we are the people of God. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the apple of his eye. We are those whom he has saved and called from darkness into light. The response was great. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Secondly, the second strategy of the enemy to come against the Jewish community was one of mockery and intimidation. In chapter 4, reading from verse 1, it says this. Now, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army, of Samaria what are these feeble Jews doing will they restore it for themselves will they sacrifice will they finish up in a day will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said yes what they are doing if a fox goes up on it he will break down their stone wall mockery and intimidation the enemy of our souls wants to mock us and intimidate us. How does intimidation work? Well, it is the undermining of confidence. It is the subtle influence of doubt, fear and worry and concern and anxiety. It is to sow seeds that are not born out of the kingdom of the Lord, but rather seeds of doubt and insecurity. It's amazing that this satanic trinity were angry and greatly enraged. Why? Because God was at work. There's nothing that makes the devil more angry than seeing the church prosper. There's nothing that makes the devil more incensed than seeing you flourish and prosper and prosper in the purposes of God. There's nothing that gets under the skin of the enemy than when the church arise in the full stature of who they are in Jesus Christ. We're not talking about physical walls today. We're talking about the building of the church, which Jesus said alone that he would construct in Matthew 16. So how did they respond? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 45, it says this. Here, 
O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So what does the prayer say? It says that the attack of these three Gentile leaders was not against the Jewish community. Even though the Jewish community had to listen to the ranting, actually the attack was against God himself. It's a bit like when Jesus appears to Paul, or Saul as he was, on the road to Damascus. What does Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We know that Saul had got it in his mind to eradicate the church from the Middle East and drag Christians and put them into prison. He was overseeing the death and the stoning of Stephen. But the attack, even though it was against Christian people, was actually, in essence, an attack against Jesus himself. When the enemy opposes you and the enemy opposes me, it is not simply against you as an individual. It is against God himself. That's where the battle lines are drawn. It is a spiritual battle, fought with spiritual weapons, which the Bible says in 2 Corinthians are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So with the first act of treachery and accusation, the answer was, God is with us. With mockery and intimidation, the answer was prayer. There's always a spiritual strategy, friends, isn't there? The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, prayer, all of these things and more. But then we move on. And the third way in which the enemies of Israel came against the people of God was through conspiracy and threat. Where it says, in chapter 4 and verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. But the response was, in verse 9 of chapter 4, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So the enemy sought to plot and plan to come against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. One of the subtle strategies of the enemy is to bring confusion. God is a God of clarity. He walks in the light because he is the light. If the Lord can cause confusion and uncertainty, then doubt and fear flourish. And as these Gentile enemies plotted against and threatened the people of God, the response again was that they prayed. There was a sense of prayer, and a sense of protection. They looked to the Lord in his heavenly throne, but they also planned and worked together in unity. So the enemy is defeated not simply when we are on our knees, but also when we are standing shoulder to shoulder. When we stand in unity, as we pray in the Spirit, as we come together as the people of God, we raise up a standard against the enemy himself. So we need to see all of this here today. 
whether that be mockery, conspiracy, threat, intimidation, ridicule, all of these accusations were silenced. And in the space of 52 days, the walls were rebuilt in a record number. Now, obviously, if you go to Jerusalem today, the walls that you see around the old city are not the ones built by Nehemiah. They were built by the Turks, I think, back in the 14th century. But the city during the days of Nehemiah was located south of what we know as the Temple Mount. And the gates were restored. You read of this in chapter 3. But the work of the Lord was accomplished in record time. Because God was with his people. And God is with us. God is amongst us. God is in us. He is around us. He is ahead of us. He is behind us. We are in him and he is in us. So that was the opposition from the outside. Let's move on. And we draw things to a conclusion. There was then opposition from the inside. And this was an issue that needed to be understood and addressed. In Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Maybe this was the result of the attack of the enemy. But they were saying, well, we can't progress. Why? Because there's too much debris. There's too much baggage. There's too much rubble. There's too many obstacles. We can't move forward as a people because the ground is littered with waste. On ten occasions it is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah about the fear that arose within the hearts of God's people. So even though they prayed, even though they recognised that God was with them, that doesn't discount the fact that we do often face times and seasons of fear. And I don't think it's wrong to confess that. If we are fearful, we need to be open and honest before the Lord. But the challenge is not whether or not we face fear, it's whether or not we're going to allow fear to control our steps. It's one thing to face doubt and uncertainty, it's another thing to allow those things to cripple us and to hinder us from moving forward. So the people of God faced this opposition from the inside. Doubt and fear, There was issues around poverty that needed to be addressed, taxation issues, and a whole range of things if you read there in chapter 5 and chapter 6. But all of these things were addressed. Yes, there was too much rubble. Let's be honest. There are challenges to face. But in 52 days, the city walls were finished as God's people worked together. It's a bit like Abraham Of whom it is said that he considered that he was dead in the flesh. But he wavered not at the promise, but was fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd asked. Yes, sometimes we need to recognise that there is a lot of rubble. But we also recognise that God has given us a word. And God will help us prosper and succeed. So how did Israel then deal with this opposition. Three things, and then we're going to be coming around the Lord's table. Number one, careful observation. We find this in the opening chapter, chapter one, chapter two. 
where Nehemiah arrives in the city and under the cloak of darkness, he observes the city, inspects the walls, keeps it all to himself. Almost like a physician looking at a broken body, looking at where the knife is to cut and how the body is to be healed. A precision, a sense of accuracy. But it was vision. Careful observation. We as God's people need to keep our eyes and ears open to God's voice, to God's pathway. We as God's people need careful observation. Nehemiah understood the challenges that lay before him. But then there was, secondly, fearless conviction. Chapter 3, we read of how there was an assignment given to different tribal groups, whether that be Levites and priests and different communities and households. Each were given a specific part of the wall that they were specifically equipped and designed to rebuild. And you can read it there in chapter 3. But there was a sense of conviction. And much of this conviction was actually inspired by the word of the Lord coming to them as a nation. Ezra himself was the one who brought God's word back to the nation and preached the word of the Lord and expounded upon the word of the Lord. Yes, it was fearless conviction, but when I say fearless, that doesn't mean to say that there was an absence of fear. It meant that fearlessness was the final word. They'd overcome some of the challenges. They'd overcome the intimidation, the mockery, the threat, the conspiracy. They'd overcome all the hurdles that the enemy wanted to throw in their pathway. They had not allowed these things to hinder them, ultimately. So fearless conviction is all about moving forward despite the obstacles that you face. And that's called faith. That's called boldness. It's not arrogance. It is a conviction based upon the fact that we know we have the word of the Lord. And they built and they worked under the cloud and the threat of conspiracy, the trial in one hand and a sword in the other. They worked and they were ready for war. And that's how we are to be, isn't it? We work and we warfare. We have the word of God build, to move forward, but also we have the weapons of our warfare, which are not mighty, which are mighty, through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that's where the battle reign, that's where the realm of conflict is found. It's the mind, isn't it? That's where the battleground is. And Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be renewed in our minds and so be transformed. And then thirdly and finally, authentic devotion. They prayed in the face of adversity. They studied the word delivered to them by Ezra in chapter 8. And so the word of the Lord was given to them. As they studied and as they prayed, as they humbled themselves before the Lord, as they recognised their own weaknesses and confessed their sin. So the Lord accomplished in and through them a great work of restoration.